Welcome to episode 289 of Global from Asia interview series. And we have a, another great one. Everyone likes China stories. We have, a, we have an epic one today. Let's tune in. Welcome to the Global from Asia podcast, where the daunting process of running an international business is broken down into straight up actionable advice. And now, your host, Michael Michelini. Did somebody say I was going to Manila and that a volcano would erupt upon arrival? Well, that's what happened to me just about a week ago. I mean, this show, um, the previous show was already going online when it happened last Sunday. Um, about an hour away from Manila, a uh, volcano decided to erupt. I remember being over to Tagatai back in my earlier days in Manila in 2009, 2010. I remember taking a trip with a friend Mike Mo over there and seeing it and he's like this volcano hasn't erupted in so long it's it's dormant I remember everybody saying it's dormant well this volcano is not dormant okay <laughs> I've been choking on ash Mark from Alvarok I'm here with helping out the Alvarok team for a special intensive project while my wife and kids are in mainland china in the freezing cold i'm in a hot volcano but uh gave us some of these air masks seriously my chest i don't know if it's just the rough travel i had coming here from multiple connections and layovers or if it was the volcano because they were so so close together i'm wearing these masks now got a couple of different styles white or black depending on my feeling or the intensity of the uh volcano or the air or the pollution or the traffic <laughs> people have been sending me messages like mike the pollution and the problems seem to follow you i left for burning season in chiang mai going to polluted shenyang and then i come down to a volcanic eruption in manila philippines it's uh it's funny somebody is watching but you are listening and thank you for that and you're listening to my blah 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 a little bit in the intro but i think i'll throw some more of this at the end because we have an amazing amazing guest today peter i i I mean, he is a, he's an amazing entrepreneur, much better than me, and he's been doing it so much longer. Um, he's, he's in Suzhou, China, which is a little bit out west of Shanghai, and he's done so many businesses himself. He's helped so many other people set up in China. He gives us insights that there are ways to succeed as a Western company in China. You know, I know there's all these war stories and, and stories of... Uh, people coming and getting their butt kicked and leaving but he has some insights to say how maybe that doesn't have to happen to you and your company so i'm really happy to have peter on the show let's tune in do you enjoy global from asia or the gfa show if you want to upgrade to gfavip.com that is just what the doctor ordered we just had an amazing members call or our mastermind we had great tom hogan's on the show thanks tom for coming on and sharing and it was a great group of people from all over the world of course in asia and it was fun we have a new forum we just upgraded and many other amazing features if you enjoy what you listen to and want to connect with me and many others in the community in a private setting where private things that i'm a little bit shy to say outside of the forum are happening check it out at gfavip.com Okay, thank you everyone for tuning in on our Global from Asia podcast. There's always, there's always guests that have been on my wish list to come on the show, and some come sooner than later, but we, we have a great one today, Peter Rasmussen. He is from Asia-based. He's, uh, he's another old-school China business expert from Denmark who's gotten a whole, 
whole list of ventures and uh, we've had a pleasure to meet uh, in different places in China and Asia. It's great to have you on the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Great to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, um, you know, we met, I remember you visited Chiang Mai and we got to meet at a, at a meetup and then we met at some events and um, you have so much experience here in Su based in Suzhou, China. For those that might not know, if I'm, it's somewhat near Shanghai and I'm up recording today in my wife's hometown, Shenyang, which is not so famous at all, um, but basically uh, the northeast of China and there's, it's cold and snowy and hopefully our internets, both our internets are stable enough, but Peter's helping out recording on his side. And um, so before we get into the interview, Peter, there's so much, I, I you know, it's, That's the, it's overwhelming the amount of stuff we could talk about. Do you want to just give us a quick intro of a little bit more about you and your background? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I'm Danish, as you, as you explained. I have been in China since 1987, and I run my own company, Asia-based Law and Projects. It's a China entry consultancy that I established all the way back in 1994 here in Suzhou. And we help foreign companies and foreign entrepreneurs getting established and achieving success in China. We had our 25th anniversary in November last year, and uh, we can look back on a long track record of having helped over 300 foreign companies starting here in China. And uh, of course, when you, help, when you help foreign companies starting, you get ideas to start your own companies too. And so it has happened also for me that I've started some companies of my own, uh, five of them. Uh, of, amongst them uh, is, of course, Asia-based law and projects, uh, the company I work with every day. But we also have a business incubator in Shanghai called DI Asiabase. It's a, it's a business launching platform for enterprises. And uh, I have invested in a pig farm uh, in Lianyungang, north of Suzhou in the Jiangsu province. A very big one, one of the biggest pig farms in China and the biggest Danish pig farm in the world with uh, 350,000 slaughter pigs per year. That, project is a whole topic for a podcast on its own, I guess. <laughs> and then I've also recently established a seed capital fund uh, to invest into startups, especially in alternative proteins. And that is uh, because China is in a situation now uh, where they lack protein because of uh, African swine fever that has taken out a large part of the Chinese swine population. So uh, China meet, needs uh, meat and you can either grow more meat in China, which, uh, which is difficult right now for the Chinese, you can import or you can look to alternatives and uh, our little seed capital fund uh, will assist when, when and if somebody is uh, looking into alternatives to meat. Yeah, I mean, it's very fascinating. I know that's... I remember when we first met, we were talking about the pig farm and 350,000. I'm trying to take some notes as we chat, but uh, it's very true. I am in Shenyang and pork is expensive. Our whole family is talking about increased prices of pork. And for listeners that might not know, Chinese love pork, right? Seriously. Definitely. China is the biggest, yeah, China is the biggest market for pork um, in the world. Half of the world's pork is consumed in China. Amazing. So 
So yeah, I mean, I think it's a good place for you, you and your your uh, platform to be. You know,、um, especially food and foreign foreigners. A lot of times, like, are stubborn, and we want to do like industries in China that Chinese either don't allow or can't. We can't compete as a foreigner, right? But I think food is a great, great industry in China for for foreigners, right? It is, and、um, it's a place where there's actually space for us to to succeed. It's been hard, or it's it has become hard to succeed、uh, competing with the Chinese in tech.、Um, tech is a sexy industry for foreign investors.、Uh, farming is not、uh, pig farming is 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 not very sexy. And as, as such, it has been overlooked by a lot of people and investors in in China. But it is an area where China lags behind the West in efficiency, and therefore there's、uh, with Western efficiency in the Chinese market with the Chinese price level,、uh, it's possible to make profits in China, especially now when the price is so high. The price has almost doubled over the last twelve months. I, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm based in, in Thailand or in Southeast Asia now, more. And、uh, yeah, we came back. We've been here for a while, and my wife's been talking about it, and the family's talking about it. It's, it's,、uh, it's true. But I, I think this, that usually the not sexy industries are the ones that are where the money is, as you seem to be saying today. And、um, it's something we learn also with Amazon selling online for listeners. Sometimes everybody wants to do the. Cool new iPhone accessory or the cool new product, but the boring stuff is is usually where the money is. Seems like in most industries, it is yes, definitely. So there's so much I can talk about.、Um, so the first, your first, let's start with first business. Nineteen、uh, eighty. Well, first, how'd you get to China? Nineteen eighty-seven. I think that'll be a that'll be. I'm sure listeners are wondering. Yes, that's it's a long story, but I'll give you a, a short version of it. Yeah, I can imagine. I've always been an entrepreneur.、Uh, I started my first startup when I was only six years old, a little waste paper collection company that I ran、uh, under guidance from my father. And if we fast forward、um, in '87, I took a bachelor's degree in engineering in electrical engineering from University of South Denmark, and. Right upon graduation, I received a money prize for、uh, my final project. It was the it was a prize for an invention, actually. So there was a little amount of money there that I could use on further studies. And at the same time, I chaired、um, a very very big project in our school.、Uh, it was construction of the first solar powered car、uh, in the world, actually, or the first one of the. First cars in the first batch of solar-powered cars in the world.、Uh, it was back then、um, where we hadn't seen even electrical cars on the streets anywhere. But、um, in Australia, they decided to to set up a race for solar-powered cars.、Uh, try to imagine that at the time, the only time you saw a solar panel or a solar cell was in a Casio sports watch or something like that. You nobody could imagine that you could. Uh, drive a car on electricity,、uh, let alone、uh, on solar p-、uh, power. But、um, I built together with a team of students in the university a very nice、uh, solar-powered car, 
and we got it sailed on a boat to Australia. It took seven weeks at the time. And I used those seven weeks to travel. And um, we had freedom. We had sponsored tickets from one of our sponsors and we had freedom to travel as we wanted through Asia down to Australia. And I chose China uh, at a time when, if you looked at a satellite map of China in the evening, you would probably not see more lights than you would see if you look at a map of North Korea today. Uh, China was uh, not very developed uh, back then in 1987. But I visited and um, I visited amongst others this experimental capitalist labor laboratory called Shenzhen. It was, a, it was an area at the time where that was fenced off in barbed wire and uh, with checkpoints where you could get in and out by showing your passport. But once inside this laboratory where they could experiment with capitalism, you saw a freedom and you also felt that China was ready to boom, not only inside these experimental laboratories, uh, that was what they called um, uh, special economic zones, but even also outside of these. And I wrote a letter home to my father. Uh, I said, I'm in China and it seems to be the place to be the next 25 years. That was in 87. And I didn't waste time after I came back to Denmark. I packed my stuff and came over here, but um, I decided to, to actually uh, go to Taiwan first because I wanted to learn Chinese. The reason was that there was a Danish company who wanted to employ me as a chief representative in China, but they demanded that I spoke Chinese. So that was my push. So um, I did uh, then get a job for this company after I have learned Chinese for a year in Taiwan. And I worked first of all with uh, selling for them in China and in Taiwan but later also to establish their first factory here in mainland China. Maybe I should say that when we, we, we competed in Australia against the car makers with our solar car, Ford and General Motors, Mercedes, Mitsubishi and others, and we, we actually did really well. We beat companies like Mitsubishi and Mercedes. We even beat uh, MIT also in that race. So that, that was a fun thing to start out with uh, in a career out here. Yeah. I just, I'm, there's so much to pick uh, pick up from that and ask, but one I have is, you're not the first one that I've talked to that's these old school China hands that's spent time in Taiwan for a while and then came in. Is that, I guess why, I mean, is it generally why, or is, what's the reason? Because it feels like I've talked to a lot of people like you that have been here for, in the 80s and 90s, and they were in Taiwan a lot, or, and then came, is there, what's the reason for that? Was there more industry there, more things, or the visa? I think we, we all wanted China, actually, but, um, but learning Chinese in mainland China at the time was not, was not easy. It was not, it was not that long after the Cultural Revolution, and um, there was still a hesitance to speak English with foreigners, and there weren't many at all who wanted to, to communicate with us. So... Um, Taiwan was the place. I learned that before I came, um, even uh, from other foreigners ha having been here and learned the language. They said, go to, go to Taipei to Mandarin Training Center in National Normal Taiwan University. That's where, to, where, where you learn the language. And so I did. Uh, and I met a lot of other foreigners there, of course, wanting to learn Chinese, but all with the same goal of actually somehow trying to make a career here in the mainland. 
Interesting. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, because I mean, I've definitely had some other great conversations. I wish I could have recorded a lot of these conversations I've had with people in China so early, but it's great that you can help clarify that because I've heard that a lot. So that was why. Um, let's let's move to your first business in China. You said 94 in Suzhou. Yes. Uh, I already told you I was hired by a Danish company to, uh, as a chief representative, um, Danfoss, uh, in the beginning. And um, for them, I had the task of establishing a company in China. At the same time, they also told me that as a, as with a bachelor's bachelor's degree in, in engineering, I wouldn't qualify as a general manager of a subsidiary company of this uh, foreign company. It's, it's a company called Danfoss, and they said to me, if I would, if I would want to also manage the company I was establishing, I would have to take an MBA or something like that. Um, it was before the internet actually, and uh, I didn't want to take a distance learning MBA. I thought that would that, that that wouldn't be me to do such a thing to to do such a thing, so I t- I did it the hard way. I I got admitted to National Taiwan Uni- University where I studied MBA for two years full time in Chinese. And um, at the same time, I was uh, to establish this company for for Danfoss in China. Danfoss wanted the company established, and the school didn't want me to have a job besides the studies. And I was actually called in by the dean to the to to, his, to her office and and told that it was either the school or or the company. And I didn't want to give up either. And I got this good idea that I could maybe merge the two. So I got permission from Danfoss to take this entire establishment project in China into the business school in Taipei. And the school accepted. So for a couple of years, we turned that school upside down with Danfoss projects. Uh, everything from from market research to study studies of legal issues uh, to drafting draft contracts to making a business plan making budgets uh, you name it everything you need in order to get a company up and going uh, we did on paper first uh, in the school and um, right when I graduated with my MBA Danfoss was ready or should have been ready to establish in China but took a time out. And there was another company that called me, <clears throat> and I still remember that phone call. They they listed things they needed done in China. That was market research and legal studies and business plan and so on. What they did was basically reading up my my um, diploma uh, line by line. So um, I said yes to doing that and quit uh, working for Danfoss while they had this time out. So I started in China setting up this uh, this other company. And uh, very soon thereafter, Danfoss came back and told me that uh, the timeout uh, was no longer a timeout. We, they were ready to go again. So I stood there with two companies that wanted to establish. Then came a couple of other companies that had heard about what I was doing. And um, so, so all of a sudden, I had four or five companies that wanted to establish in China at the same time. So instead of saying yes to just one of them and no to the others, I decided to set up my own company. We are now in 1994. I started AsiaBase, and it is a a business consultancy focusing on helping foreign companies doing exactly these things I just mentioned. Uh, today, it has turned more into being a law firm uh, with a strategy attachment, so that we help our clients not only to get legally established but also to achieve 
a good position um, in terms of costs and competitiveness in China. So, so that's that's the story behind Asia Base. Asia Base has then since then um, helped. I think it's 315 foreign companies getting started in China with that whole package of looking at the market, looking at the opportunities, making a business plan, getting legally established and, and started up. Many of them, and most of, by far most of them have had success also. So I'm pretty proud of that. And in that process, of course, then I, I learned also how, how to do it and set up a couple of companies on my own, as I mentioned earlier. It, it's great. I mean, I think um, probably listeners are wondering how can they replicate this or what industries, maybe is it an industry thing or is it, is it, what would you say would be the, you've seen most succeed, some not succeed. Obviously, obviously there's public case studies we, we both know we could talk about that have been big failures that are foreign companies in China. Is there some kind of trend or insight you could share what makes it work or not? Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, you have to look at the, at the industry at the right time, the right industry at the right time. And I've been here ever since the talk was about that Chinese needed or every Chinese family should have a refrigerator and a, and a television. That was what the talk was in the early 90s. So, um, and then there were other people saying, hey, how would that be possible? Where would they get all the electricity from? That, that was the talk of the day in the early 90s. But as, as we've all seen that, they, they solved their problems, right? Um, so in the beginning, I, I assisted companies transferring production lines for uh, white goods, refrigerators and so on. Then came a, a new wave with foreign furniture, machines, uh, building uh, materials, and then came uh, the, the telecom bubble in the 2001, but, but a lot of industries entered uh, during that time. Then came shipbuilding, automotive, and safe food, and you name it. Uh, so it's about being in the market at the right time with the right product. And that's one success factor. Another one uh, is that, that you can compete with the Chinese if you're focusing on the Chinese market. And that has to do with cost level and understanding how things are really done out here. But most companies that came in um, over the 25 years I've been in this business, uh, most companies have come to China actually with a dream of targeting the Chinese market, but then giving up and uh, instead targeting the world market. And there they were competitive because they could lower the costs compared to abroad when they came to China with their production. And then they could sell back home or sell to the world markets with a higher margin than they could from their original home base. So that's, be that's become the business model for many, many of the foreign companies coming out here. Simply um, replicating what they had at home in a factory in China, finding out that it's much cheaper, still unable to enter the Chinese market, but able to compete in other markets with a product uh, that's produced at lower cost. Which makes sense. It's true. I mean, I have to admit, I've, I've had my share of things didn't work out in China and a lot of times uh, yeah everybody has that China dream and we can especially the internet world I mean I think China doesn't really I don't have you work with internet companies in China foreigners I mean has that I feel like that one might be a really 
difficult one. Uh, it is, yes. Uh, I, I haven't had the chance to work with internet companies, but I've worked with a lot of tech companies in the um, IT industry, mostly producing hardware. And, and actually, you know, the story is uh, there, uh, to give an example of what I just uh, said, in, in and around 2001, there was a large number of foreign companies entering China um, catering for the telecommunication, mobile telephone uh, networks and handsets. Ericsson, Nokia, um, Alcatel, and what they were called at the time. There were, there were many, many of them. And at one point in time, AsiaBase, my company, helped some 20 companies that were coming to China just to cater for these big ones, the big international ones in the Chinese market. We, we helped them getting established here. And they came because they were forced to by these big international companies. But very quickly, after they arrived, came the, the IT bubble and a lot of troubles around that. So these international companies were faced with pressure to localize their, product, their, their sourcing, their supply chain. So these 20 companies that I helped in here, plus all the many hundreds uh, that I didn't help, they, they came out here believing that they would now produce for the big international companies in China, but were faced with losing their business, this, this business to local Chinese companies. And um, so what could they do? They couldn't really sell into the Chinese market so they started to sell uh, to their home markets. And that's, it's a, it's a very good example of, of this situation where you come here, you come for, it, for the local market. In this case, it was for other international companies in China, finding out that you are not competitive against the Chinese, but then you, at the same time, you find out that you are competitive against yourself at home. So you can sell into the world markets with an okay product at a much lower cost. It makes sense. I mean, I guess China makes us lean and mean <laughs> one way or the other, right? So you could you could leverage that. I mean, right? We've all had to learn to be um, smart, savvy business owners uh, to to do business in China. I mean, would you say kind of leads into the next topic? Uh, hopefully, it's okay. I hope you're okay. I know I bounced around a little bit, but yeah, I think no, then no and now, especially. Would you say it's, how would you say it is? Is it easier, harder? I mean, it's just different. I mean, you, I've read your, one of your books. I, I look forward to your future book um, where you said like back when you came in China, you just had to have some Chinese skills and maybe some, some basic connections back home and you could make a business. I think that obviously it's not as true now. Of course, anything is possible, but, um, you know, maybe just discuss what you had then to start maybe versus what you think people need now to start, or we could break that into a few parts. It's a big question. Yes. I mean, to start here, you need to have an advantage of some kind. And um, if you're going for the Chinese market, you, you better have some advantage. Um, that includes also understanding the market here. But uh, for me, my customers were all foreign. So I, quickly established myself as, as the saying goes, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I was this foreigner out here who had already set up a couple of companies, first for Danfoss uh, as a job, um, while I was also studying, but later also for, for other companies. And then also being able to speak Chinese. After all, uh, at that time, um, 
there weren't many Chinese speaking English, so we had us who wanted to do something out here, we had to learn the language. So um, I had the, the ability to speak in, in Chinese also because I took my MBA um, in that language, plus um, these couple of experiences setting up foreign companies. So in the land of the blind, I was the one-eyed man. That was my advantage at the time. It's, it's getting much, much harder now uh, to, get, to have an advantage or to establish an advantage when you want to enter the market here. You're up against Chinese companies who understand their market way better than we do, their culture much better. But, um, but such, such advantages could be that you know the market abroad if you want to do cross-border uh, cross uh, business. That's um, hard for the Chinese to compete against. If you understand your market abroad and you've established a supply chain here in China, that's definitely one of the, the areas where you can establish an advantage. But it can also be an ability you have, <clears throat> a skill, and it can be relations that you have established to, to customers or to suppliers that others cannot copy easily, or combinations of that, actually. Okay. Okay. This is good. I'm just I was taking a quick ball of notes myself. And um, some more, more follow-up. You know, I think um, it's getting... The environment is really, is really changing. And... Uh, You've mentioned the pig costs increase. I mean, I think that there's a lot of in, in, inflation. Is that, would you say? That, I mean, maybe the pig is a little bit different because of is this, but costs have really increased in China. You must have seen it then to now, especially even I noticed it over ten years. Or maybe I was in the hyper increased price. Was that is it inflation or what would you say that is? Or just developing economy or it is the developing economy. It is China wanting to to raise. The, the, the level, um, the standards of living uh, in, in the whole population. But I also want to say that I think, uh, although costs have increased, also the quality that follows has in increased, and even more than the costs, actually. You get more for the money today when you hire Chinese people uh, to work for you in the company. People joked about it back then in the 90s. They said you have to hire five Chinese for every foreigner you hired. So they said, so you had one working and four looking or whatever it was. But, but today, I think Chinese workers are more disciplined uh, than foreign workers. They work harder. Um, and although the, the cost of hiring a Chinese has gone up, the, the output that they deliver has gone up too. And also they deliver an awful lot of hours for for their salary we we must we must not forget that i know foreign companies tend to hire chinese and keep them for 40 hours a week and and give them long holidays like we do at uh, at home abroad uh, but the chinese they hire the people they give them they give them basically the same amount of take home pay but they have them working 40 oh, sorry 50 or 60 hours per week maybe uh, less breaks and less costs. You know this. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the Jack Ma. What or he's called it. I'm blinking on it, but you just popped in my mind. Uh, six days, twelve hours, something. He had like three numbers, like or two numbers. What? Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to put you on the spot, but I think it was Jack Ma that says the Chinese workers are working six days a week, like 
10 hour, eight hour, 10 hour days or something, or I think that is a quote that Chinese work more hours than most of the world is. I don't want to disrespect Europeans. I don't want to be this American just bundling all Europeans as one. I think Northern, like you are, you're from Danish, a harder worker, but I feel like Europe has like, didn't they reduce the amount of hours or maybe that's Spain or some countries. And they're like complaining that China's growing so fast, but you can say what you want as a, as a person about China, but they work, they work hard, you know, and they'll do whatever it takes. You know, I mean, look at any Chinatown around the world. You'll see this Chinatown, you know, they're waking up at 5 a.m., taking fish from the markets, you know, selling, you know, look anywhere. Ch look at the Chinese restaurants, fast food, at least in America. And these people work day and night, you know, whatever it takes. So. Right. And they take pride in it, too. Yeah. So, um, and, and I mean, to compare... A Chinese, let's say a Chinese worker today needs 5,000 RMB or $800 to take home every, every month. Um, they don't mind working 60 hours for their $800, but they mind having less than $800. And I think basically foreign companies, they haven't really understood that, that it, this is how it works. Give them that salary that they need to take home to to make sure, make sure that they can feed a family and have a life. But, but then again, their time is, is not valued as high as we value our time. So they, they're able and willing to give more hours and the whole family and the whole family system supports that. It's, it's one way that Chinese companies gets, get more uh, competitive than foreign, than foreign companies in China. It is simply that they squeeze out more hours of every employee while still paying them the, the same amount or, or less even. I like, yeah, I would agree with that. So then I think that's the hard part. I'll speak for myself. I think a lot of listeners are, you know, we have a lot of Westerners come to China and try to apply our Western like mindset of the nine to five, eight hours, one hour lunch, you know, go home, don't work, you know, like, and then, but you can't, right? Like, I think you probably seem to teach that or, you know, practice that in your, your, your agency, your company with your clients, I'm sure, but you can't just use your same model and business model into China, right? You have, like you're just saying, you have to have the team work extra hours, maybe even six days a week, you know, even though you're, but how would you handle that if you have a European office and then a Chinese office, they, they're working the um, five hours, you know, seven hour days or six hour days. It's a choice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a choice you have, uh, whether you want to do it the Chinese way or doing, doing it the foreign way. But, but it's a fact that we are losing out to, to Chinese companies when it comes to cost competitiveness. And we can either just say, hey, let go and, and that's it. Then we can compete at home in our home markets as long as that lasts. Or we can actually try to see how are things done here and Try still in a, in a way where we pay attention to corporate social responsibility, where we, we don't misuse and exploit people in, in a bad way, but try to simply accept that we are in China for the good and, and, and for the better and for the bad. And, um, and try to, to do as the Chinese. I would say if you want to be cost competitive in China in the long run, there's almost no way around also learning how to 
uh, how to structure the cost structure in, in, in a company. And that includes how you pay your people and for how many hours. But if, if you're here and you can, if, I mean, if, if you have the freedom to choose not to compete against the Chinese in China, then, then it's fine to do it the, the European way. That's what we see most companies are doing. And actually, that's also their biggest problem going forward. It used to be so that foreign companies could compete because of novelty, because they were foreign. I don't know if you remember uh, when you first came here, if a product was imported, it was, it was good by definition, even if it was made in a joint venture. And if it was locally produced, the Chinese didn't look at it as being as good. I think that is changing. And I think it's changing in a way so that when a product is imported in the minds of the Chinese, that is attached with some feeling of that product being too expensive. There's, there's too much waste around it. Foreign companies, they waste, uh, especially when it comes to overheads in their factories and in their businesses. And the Chinese, they, have, they, they know that after all. They know the, the, the difference between the Chinese and the foreign product is that uh, materials are almost the same, right? And, um, and craftsmanship is, is, is comparable right now. But they know that foreign companies, they come in with overheads that are way higher than the Chinese. Actually, I would say most foreign companies, they operate at way too high costs in China. And therefore, it's hard to compete in the Chinese market. Right now, as I've said again and again, um, it's easy to comp compete against your own home base abroad, because when you're here, it's, it's cheaper after all to produce in China, uh, and therefore you have a cost advantage uh, selling abroad, but you're somehow caught in the middle. Do, do you get what I mean? You, it, you are cheaper than, than producing in your home base, but you're more expensive than Chinese companies producing a comparable product. So where does it go from there if the Chinese, they start to compete abroad with their products, which is actually happening big scale? It's, it's getting harder to compare, compete against the Chinese. And, and one of the things we have to look at is how do they do it? How do they get this cost structure that allows them to do that? And, and I mean, there's one thing you can't ignore fully, and that is the way they pay their people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do agree, but at the same time, I know that especially... I mean, Europeans seem the most like uh, about you know environment and uh, and work ethics, or in the U.S. too. But I think listeners might be thinking so. Then, if if there's child labor or slave labor or 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 unfair conditions or sweatshops or or etc., that means I have to implement that overseas in my home market in order to compete now. Like, does that mean I have to transplant these like bad practices or maybe? I guess it's it's a weird way to think, you know, six days or t 10 hours, but it's true. Like if you, the West is falling behind and uh, I guess they have to just do what China does to compete globally in the future. I mean, you don't have to copy bad things from China, but, but it's a definition of whether, whether, I mean, whether working 60 hours a week, is that a bad thing? I'm from Denmark and uh, we are drilling oil in the North Sea. I had a lot of friends when I was younger who worked on the oil drilling platforms in the North Sea. And um, 
I compare that with Chinese workers. A lot of them are coming from rural areas to the cities. They work in the factories. What should they do when they don't work, right? Compare that to a, a worker from Denmark working on an oil drilling platform in the middle of the North Sea. Uh, you, if you said to, to this Danish uh, guy there, uh, we have 40 hours a week and uh, we have a TV room where you can watch TV and you, there's a little room where you can relax, uh, the remaining time, you wouldn't get anyone to work there. They want to work when they're on the oil drilling platforms. And I think for the Chinese, it's, it's, it's the same thing. You see it on the construction sites when they build the high rises. People are there to work. They're not there to enjoy life. So um, is that, um, does that mean that we don't treat them well if they work 60 hours a week or do we actually give them what they want? They want to earn money, they want to provide for their family and uh, as much as they can. Um, you talked about other things. Uh, I think we should never ever give in on safety in the workplace and even the air and, and all this. Uh, Chinese have ways to save costs in the workplace that where we would say no, that, that, that doesn't apply in our world and, and we can't do that. But for example, I mean, you, you, I, I'm pretty sure you have visited Chinese factories and then they have no heating and no cooling in the workshops, right? There's, there's, a, there's a bit of money to be saved right there. And Chinese people, they go to work with uh, two or three layers of pants and and uh, and uh, and close right so if they go to work in a foreign company they go to the dressing room uh, to the to the yeah to the dressing room in the morning and they will have to take off layers to go to work and when they go back home because they also don't have heating at home they will have to put on those layers again when they leave the factory a chinese factory they go there they work like they they, they come like they are with their three layers and whatever and they work the, the day and they they go home and they they still have three layers on at home because that's that's how it is and and we can maybe try to bring in western style comfort to chinese factories but um, but, but is that really necessary and and are we improving on something there uh, we think that we improve life when we have the climatic control of, of factory shop of factory buildings where where they don't but um, it's just another way of, of doing it. I'm not hinting that, that you should turn off the heat or the, the cooling in, in, your, in your Chinese factories. But if you want to compare and understand where are the differences, that, that's one of these areas. It's totally accepted in China to work 60 hours a week. It's totally accepted that the workshops are not cooled in the summer or heated in the winter. Or at least not to, a, not to 21 degrees Celsius year-round, that uh, 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 there is some um, fluctuation there. And there are, other, there are other things too. I mean, we come in here with foreign managers that have children that go to school, go to international school, which is very expensive. The Chinese, they barely have English-speaking capacity. When you go to visit the Chinese factory, you will find very often that they have one or two people speaking English. That would be the person, the girl in the export department, Mrs. Lin or Mrs. Wang or Mrs. Chen, and she will sit in and translate for her boss in the meetings. In foreign companies, we would start out saying, everybody here should speak English, so we understand each other. 
And um, when you hire people who speak English at the first layer of, uh, of management level, um, then uh, they automatically hire uh, according to that same recipe further down in the organization. And you end up with overhead costs that are double or triple what they have in Chinese companies. That can be a problem in the long run. We, we, we tend to hire overqualified people in foreign companies just because we can. This is an amazing conversation. I have a feeling we'll have to have you come back on soon. Uh, I'm trying to kind of figure out where to cut this one and get to a next episode. But I mean, I could go, I think we can go back and forth and feel like I'm sure listeners have a lot they could, they would want to say. Maybe we can even have them give us some questions for, for a follow-up show. But it's very fascinating. And it's just really also the globalization and the world and technology and the internet and and you know, um, but it's also kind of created these new these new walls, right? Or these trade wars and these uh, these political kind of things, which are trying to stop, like stop maybe I don't want to say this specifically, but stop you know people from certain countries that are willing to work harder, do whatever it takes to grow their their uh, opportunity. Um, I've gotten into some arguments with some friends over that over dis- over dinners and stuff. But uh, I think let's let's kind of get we can maybe come for another show or there's so much we can go on with that topic, but I think we can just kind of wrap up that part to say, if you want to compete in China, you know, you can't come in with your expat expat packages and MBAs. I mean, that's one reason we can talk about Groupon all day. I was here. I was in the middle of that. I could have been one of their first hires and I'm like, man, this is why they're going to fail. They're trying to hire me, you know, <laughs> like no offense to me, but uh, <laughs> they're hiring all these foreigners and shipping them in from overseas to do Groupon <laughs> China. I'm like, this is crazy. So we, uh, I don't think we have to get into detail about Groupon, but that's one reason I think one of the reasons they failed, but um, let's talk a little bit about the opportunities. You know, there's lots of listeners. There's always these young 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 lads like you and I were they want to come into China and now they're getting out of college or they're in their 20s and they want to take over the world and take over China what would you what are you telling them now you know in this new decade yes uh, you you mentioned the word globalization i think globalization by and large is is uh, over uh, i mean globalization being that you have a production of something abroad, you copy that in China and you produce the exact same thing in China uh, for a, at a lower cost. I mean, just taking advantage of low cost countries, uh, if, if that's the definition of, of globalization, then that's over. I think uh, those who, who should be here are here, or there's a very little, there's not much inflow anymore of, of companies under the definition of, of globalization. The, the old-fashioned way, but uh, but things are changing, and what's replacing it? I think companies from abroad are coming to China to take part in a process that has to do with innovation. You see more and more foreign companies taking advantage of Chinese laboratory capacity to to experiment and to develop, but also to set up businesses here uh, that will develop new products for the Chinese market, not just taking old products in. And in order to be on the beat with new products in new markets all the time, you have to source a lot of uh, development, R&D, from outside your own organization. And that's where all these, that's where the whole startup world comes into the picture. The st- uh, if you, I mean, today you cannot 
with the pace of development of everything, you cannot hire 200, 500, 2,000, 5,000 R&D people, right? You have to, you have to crowdsource your development. And the, the most convenient way to do that is to nurture a startup culture. So you have around you hundreds and thousands of startups where you can uh, crowdsource. I think that's the way Google gets around uh, their development and, and Facebook and Alibaba and, and Tencent and, and, and other big tech companies. They, they, they do it, they, they, they fish in the pond of uh, startups that, and they also nurture that pond all the time. And there's a and there's a corner of that pond here in China that allows for foreigners to 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 be be part of that. But it's hard to be a foreign entrepreneur coming into China and establishing here. But the areas where there is something is um, intelligent hardware. It is um, it is in IoT, especially in healthcare, maybe, and and high tech. Farming and agriculture—that's that's where I have my own business. Safe food uh, and so on. Alternative proteins, as I mentioned. So, so there's still opportunities for high-tech startups, also where there's foreigners um, participating or even leading. But this being said, I think that we don't have a population of foreign entrepreneurs in China that that matches. I mean, the, t- take a cross-section of foreign entrepreneurs in China and, uh, and you'll see that they are either students who study, came here to study Chinese and they want to stay. They don't come with a particular um, t- tech background, right? Uh, they are maybe, they, they could be lead, uh, managers of foreign companies and they are now asked to go home for reasons of cost-saving and so on. Uh, or they're, they're, they're dismissed from their positions or, or their contracts expire. So, um, so they're left over and they want to find a new job. It's hard to find a job as a foreigner here. So they, and they want a name card with something on it. You know, so they, they become entrepreneurs, they start their companies. Or you can have um, spouses simply, foreigners marrying, into, marrying a Chinese spouse and then they end up here. So the cross-section of foreign entrepreneurs in China is not uh, equal to a cross-section of foreign entrepreneurs in, in the US or in Denmark, where you would have people from, from all walks of life with all levels of tech education and all, all kinds of um, background, backgrounds in, in actually entrepreneurship, right? So here it's more random, and therefore we don't have a good representation in China of of um, foreign tech companies that are started in China or even foreign startups that are started in China. Yeah, you make me think of that joke. I think, you know, a lot of Chinese make fun of foreigners in China because they say we're the ones that couldn't make it in our home country and had to come here. <laughs> I probably heard that. Um, which is, there's some truth to that. I mean, but I've seen the different waves of foreigners, at least when I was down in Shenzhen, I saw this transition. When I first came, I was maybe the new wave, maybe, or I was the e-commerce. There was the, you probably know a lot of those old school trader foreigners that were, I'm trying to think of the uh, correct way, but they didn't have any tech background because they didn't need tech background. They were really just kind of middlemen that could get a factory and then they had friends or connections back home and then they could make a phone call on Skype at night. 
to the U.S. or their home country, and then they could make some money in the middle. But that was going away when I started coming here. And uh, but yeah, I feel it's true. There's not, you know, of course we don't have Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that are in China, and they're in Silicon Valley, or maybe in the in the home countries in Europe. But there, there's a lot to say about this topic. You know, it's gonna be a hard one. <laughs> I don't want to dig in too much, but I would agree. It's it's there's not a big enough pool of expats in China, but um, I think the main summary I would say is, like you said at the beginning of the of today's discussion, is have some kind of a competitive advantage. Don't just be a foreigner in China, right? Just by being a foreigner in China, um, you're not going to have an advantage. You know, I've met some uh, ex- ex- foreigners that come here, and maybe they have a family business. We've had some people on the show in the past that maybe their father or their family started a brand or product and they came here to source and to do to, to you know they have some kind of uh leverage but yeah i think nowadays you can't just say i'm a foreigner and i want to come to china and start a business and i'm going to be successful i mean of course anything is possible but yeah i think you you got to develop a skill and probably develop that skill in college or in trade and in your western um environment and then bring that bring that here uh would probably be the what i think is a summary of what you're you're saying right yeah, but you can also exploit your foreignness, so to speak. There are foreigners succeeding here because they're foreigners. Uh, you see, you see some um, restaurant change that uh, it, it it might not be tech, but it's it, it's it's companies retailing uh, food and also in fashion that develop very quickly because they understand the trend. Uh, or they see trends developing outside of China a little before they they develop here and they are on the beat and and get in and they're quick and they they're quick to pull the trigger to 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 get stuff done in China. So so there are examples of foreigners who have made it in China a lot. Actually, I'm just saying that the the cross section of foreign entrepreneurs here doesn't really resemble what it is at home. We have way more. Uh, People here that are entrepreneurs by chance or, or randomly uh, became entrepreneurs because of other reasons than, than wanting to be an entrepreneur. Um, but those that are here uh, that that succeed, uh, they, they are they're fantastic. Uh, you, you you know many of them, and I guess you're one of them yourself. Uh, doing doing business cross border. I've survived. <laughs> I've been through a lot, <laughs> but. Uh... It's it's great, Peter. I, I knew this would be a great show. I'm sure listeners enjoy it. I mean, we could go on forever, I feel, but I think if you're welcome to come back on the show and let's talk quickly. You know, you just released Definitely. one of your first books. I know you've been we even chat about your your um your road to writing books uh, together and Startup Runway, a step-by-step guide to turn a good idea into a great business, which I went through and I gave a review and uh, it was even for me a good refresher and uh not really about China to talk about China, but I think that's for anybody looking to start up. I mean, there were some things in there I even learned and I wish I had known my 10, 15, 20 years ago when I was doing this, there's some terms and some lingo, especially with raising money and preparing business plans and business partners. So I definitely recommend people spend like a few bucks on Amazon and, and uh, get an MBA or better than, you know, great info. And then you have another one coming up. I don't know if we have a title or something we can send people to about, about more about China business. So, and um, I don't know if you want to share about those, the one or both books. Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, starting up a business in China, whether, uh, whether it's a subsidiary of a foreign company or whether it's uh, starting a company from scratch, 
in China everything moves so fast and everything is so new and your value proposition or, or your customer, the way they, they, they have preferences and, and, and the way they choose is so different from abroad that I will argue that starting any company, whether it's a subsidiary of an existing company, will, will have to be treated like a startup. And for, for 25 years, I've been working with foreign companies, starting up subsidiaries and also companies from scratch in China. And, and over that time, I've, got, I've, I've come to work with some of the, the finest companies who are very serious about how they do things. And I've learned a lot from that. Um, and over the past 10 years or so, I found myself involved also as a mentor for, for a lot of foreign entrepreneurs here. That, that, that could be students that want to stay on. It could be foreign, foreign managers here who want to quit their job in China for a foreign company and start their own. And I've, I've, been, I've become a mentor, mentor for them. And um, it's been so that I've, I've had my traditional clients, they pay my bills, but I have all these entrepreneurs that I, I love to coach and uh, mentor. And uh, I meet with them in the coffee shops. And I, because of limited time with them, I try to structure my advice to them. And that had that has caused me to over the years to develop some checklists that I like to hand out to them and say go go through these steps and then and so on and a couple of years ago I decided to to run a series of workshops on how to start a company in China here in Suzhou and I, I set up this it was 10 workshops uh, 20 lessons over 10 10 days uh, spread all over uh, several months and um for each of these 20 lessons, I summarized um, what I had been teaching and preaching in an explainer video. I like to make these whiteboard explainer videos. Uh, and um, so I, I ended up with 20 of these videos and decided that I should actually somehow try to write that into a book about how to start a company in China. I worked on that book for a couple of years and I visited people in China, uh, you were one of them. I think that was how we met the first time. I wanted to, to, to learn your perspective on, on some of the things. But I, I came up with a book that was way too heavy. So last year, at around this time in January, I decided to split my heavy book, How to Start in China, into two. One book with my 20 steps and my checklists and, and all the, the the, the knowledge you need in the information and the method methodology you need to get started anywhere in the world in one book. And that's the one I called uh, Startup Runway that's now available in the stores. And the other one is a book that is much more uh, China focused. It's about challenges that are different here from, from what they are in other countries. And that has to do with how do you start lean and mean how do you compete in a country where you are foreign? Um, and what is it about China that, that makes it hard? And how do, you, how do you climb those mountains? So, so the next book, it's coming out in April or May this year, uh, will, be, will be much more China-focused. Okay, exciting. Yeah, I'll definitely keep me posted and uh, we'll try to update the show notes. We link to the first book to the Amazon page, uh, as well as, of course, asiabase.com is your your main consulting company. And um, how else can people reach you? I mean, I guess go to asiabase.com. Asiabase.com is, is the easy way. I, I also have, uh, Startup Runway has a website on its own. Um, 
it's it's in my uh, my own name peterrasmussen.com uh, in one word peterrasmussen.com there you can there you can see what the book this book is all about and you can also see those uh, explainer videos that i mentioned they are, they uploaded to that website great i'll link to the, your your uh, your website too there um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's gone a little bit longer than my normal, but I think I had a feeling this would happen, which is a good thing. And thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Go remit. You guys made some amazing upgrades. I'm really happy. We got multi-user support at goremit.hk. So I just added Mindy on my team, my amazing HR and PM six years with us. Thank you, Mindy, for putting up my craziness. I am craziness. I think you're helping QC this podcast. Hopefully I don't cut this out, but go remit.hk for your cross-border payments so i load up money from my hong kong bank to go remit and i pay my team in the philippines and i send money to my amazing wife in shenyang and i send money to developers in vietnam making the gfa vip forum and all this stuff because go remit makes it really easy and decent exchange rate you know commission off these transactions so i don't have to have banks and wire transfers all over the place thank you and check them out GoRemit.hk. All right, Peter, thank you so much. I mean, we all have these war stories and, and losses of foreigners in China. I'm really happy to hear these successes and these insights from Peter. He's a true China entrepreneur and has been through so much and has helped so many people and has amazing books and is sharing and is mentoring people in the community there in Suzhou and in other parts of China. And I hope I hope to see him again soon. We're working on a cross-border summit in Chiang Mai. And uh, I can't commit. I mean, we got some verbal discussion with him, but he would be an amazing guest to get. And we have others lined up. Matt Brennan from China Channel has said he's going to come down talking about WeChat. I got some Lazada experts, of course, Amazon. There's so much Amazon everywhere, honestly. So we're going to start to expand to Southeast Asia. We're going to have some China marketing. We're going to have, that's what cross border summit is to me. Seriously. It is about cross border e-commerce, cross border trade. You know, I mean, I know Amazon's taking over the world and all this stuff, but we're, we're diversifying. We want to help you diversify, but you know, I feel when listening to Peter, I mean, you should have learned Chinese. I mean, I can kind of get by, but, you know, I think it's really, that's my biggest takeaway is you got to commit. If you're going to do China business and you're going to try to do a company in China, you got to learn Chinese. You know, there's not really much way around it. You know, I know it's it's hard. I know there's a lot to it, but uh, I would say that is pretty critical. Although I know many foreigners that speak very good Chinese that have gotten their buttocks kicked hard in china seriously i don't want to name names because that's just not cool throwing somebody under the bus but i think anybody in china you know i know these guys that speak fluent chinese and they're talking to people and even chinese get their butts kicked you know so i think it's strategy it's mindset it's insight so i really i really hope peter helped some of you listen all of you listening today i mean that's what it's really about here is uh is helping you i mean I know it's morbid, and it's been bookmarked my mind. It's alive4.com, little website. Jasper on our team helped me program alive4.com slash Michelini if you want to see how long I think I'm going to live. But I'm almost halfway, man. I'm almost 40. Can you believe it? I know I sound like I'm 25. I look like I'm 18 or something to you. But life is going so fast, and... I think if you're going to do business in China, go in and immerse. I, I, people have been commenting on my video blog at mikesblog.com saying, oh, Mike, if you wanted to learn Chinese, you could have stayed in your wife's hometown in Shenyang instead of going to Manila. 
But, uh, you know, I'm taking a break from China, seriously. I, I don't want to offend sensitive Chinese people or other China veterans like Peter, but I'm taking a break, honestly. It's just, uh, drink some of my ginger tea. Hold on. I think it's good for the volcanic ash. <sighs> Microwaved ginger tea, because there's no water cookers here. It's not like China where there's little water, electric water cookers everywhere. Just microwaves in Manila. But, you know, I'm taking a break. You know, I, a lot of people have been asking me. It seems like more and more people just started realizing I'm not in China anymore, like yesterday or something. Somebody's, like, shocked I'm not there. But I think um, we got to go where where our opportunities are. And I, I am really excited about Southeast Asia. You know, of course, I'm a partner here in Alpha Rock. And, uh, you know, I willingly came here. I felt like, hey, I'm always there. I know some people said Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen, but... I wanted to come down here and see if I could add some value. I, I've been here just for a week, and I've already done some training for the team on Amazon, trying to increase some of our strategies. And there's uh, the studio, the content studio we, we acquired at Alpha Rock. I'm going to help do some uh, inbound marketing, online internet marketing. Actually, that's my passion, to be honest. So I came down here. This is my strength. I, I have an amazing team in the Philippines that helps make this amazing show. There's so many people I don't want to even say it because I don't want to leave somebody out. But Alvin, I've mentioned a bunch of times, always is uh, helping us get this show at patched all together with my <clears throat> rough words and bleeps. But yeah, we don't we cut the F word. There's some shows we just recorded with the F word from guests, but we cut that out. Ah, ginger tea. I got some Vicks vapor rub too after this. Shower and vapor 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 rubs. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed. I got a lot of insights. Cameron sent me messages. He said he liked uh, my Uncle Gary. He really gets to understand the American mindset. Um, although I have to say, I don't think Gary, my Uncle Gary is a normal American. Uh, he's a special American, or special human being. But uh, I keep always, he definitely riles up listeners. So I don't know. You want him on for a third time? Seriously? But uh, I think I'm going to cut this short. I got I got to clean up a little bit, take some vapor rub, drink some more ginger tea, recover from this volcanic ash in my body. I feel it in my chest. Or it's just, maybe it's just been exhausting going from Shen, you know, Chiang Mai, Shenyang, China to Manila, Philippines in like a month. So that's it for this week. We got amazing shows. There's guests emailing me all the time that want to come on this show. I'm like, I don't even know why, you know. We just put this stuff out here. We just keep grinding. It's a grind, but I have an amazing team, and I can't wait to meet more of them uh, here in Manila and other parts of the Philippines. We're going to do a team retreat in March. We've got the Crossbar Summit coming up. I'm talking to April about making that even more amazing. My amazing wife It's going to be in Chiang Mai, Thailand in November. Already getting amazing speakers and sponsors lined up, and... Uh, just lots of work to do lots and lots of work to do but that's what we like i mean everybody has work it's just hopefully if you enjoy it or not and we are enjoying what we do here at least i am <coughs> excuse me <coughs> i'm dying here. <coughs> all right <coughs> see i gotta go i gotta try to recover here take care everybody thanks for listening see you next week bye-bye to get more info about running an international business, please visit our website at www.globalfromasia.com. That's www.globalfromasia.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes feed. Thanks for tuning in.